series on the book of Samuel. If you'll go ahead and turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Before we get cranking with that, though, just wanted to, to let you know a, a couple of things about worship. Um, Matt Drago, he had announced at our family meeting, I guess it was two Sundays ago, that he is going to, over the next few months, be transitioning back down to Anderson. Um, he feels like as we have focused as a church on living on mission, um, it's become increasingly harder for them to do that, living in Anderson, realizing that if they invite some people from Anderson, driving 45, 50 minutes an hour is difficult for them. So um, we are encouraged about where Matt's going, although we're just not, not excited about losing him. Um, but we are encouraged that God is um, bringing more people to the church, and he has provided good gifts in the church. Um, this morning was Matt uh, Child's first time leading in, in his in kind of introductory way, so... Matt, please, please hear that encouragement wherever you are. Um, over the next few months, we're going to be trying different men out and giving them opportunities to lead, see what God might have over the next while. So Matt and others are going to have opportunity to, to, to grow and, and see what the Lord makes clear. And we're hoping to have more clarity, clar- clarity, clarity <laughs> over the next couple of months. <laughs> Whatever clarity is. Um, <laughs> oh, it's fun. Um, what is clear is that our worship service is not about any one man. It's not about me. It's not about Aaron. It's not about Matt Drago, Matt Childs. Our worship service, when we gather together, we want to gather not to worship any man. We, we gather to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so um, no matter what changes we make, let's stay focused on the fact that ultimately he is the lead worshiper. God's the lead worshiper. Jesus is the lead worshiper. And so um, let's keep that in mind. And I'm grateful though for gifts like Matt Childs and seeing some of the other guys we're going to throw in the mix too. So well last week we looked at Hannah's prayer. Um, I was astounded as we went through Hannah's prayer. Personally, it was astounded at just her exaltation of God and how she glorified God after God had given her what she had prayed for. She glorified God, and her prayer was exalting God for his greatness and for his glory, for his power. And she had a perspective, really, that informed my prayers, and I hope has informed your prayers as well. As, as we pray, may we be more aware of of God's power and of God's working, of God's presence, and of, and of really what God is going to do in the future, God's prophetic future. So um, I, I know that it was helpful for me looking to how I have faith in prayer. But now the story shifts suddenly. There's a contrast in our story. And I, and I love that we're in 1 Samuel because it gives us the stories of the people of God. And And I was thinking this morning that doesn't God primarily communicate to us in ways we can understand, and he does that in stories. You know, we we all love those stories that, you know, maybe your grandma used to tell you when you sat up at her house and she was spoiling you rotten, or um, those those stories that around the campfire, the stories that they kind of mean things to us that we get ideas from, and God communicates to us in stories. And so this week, as the story shifts, there's a contrast that the author of Samuel is setting up. There's a, there's a contrast between his son Samuel, between Hannah's son Samuel, the answer to prayer, and the sons of Eli and Eli himself. And there's this dramatic contrast. And so we'll be looking at 1 Samuel 2, uh, 11 through 36. But we're going to begin just by reading the first 
uh, 11 through 26, those verses, then we'll, we'll pick up with the other verses later on. So let's listen to God's holy, inspired word. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests of the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. Well, the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and would say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him, but... If someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak to us in ways that we can understand. You speak to us by example. You speak to us in stories that we can relate to. And thank you, God, that it's clear in this account that in the middle of a dark period in the lives of your people, you continue to be at work and you are raising up a man after your heart. God, I pray that you would use this account to bring us faith that no matter what dark times we might be walking through, no matter what dark times around us we see, Lord, I pray that you would give us hope and faith to see that you are raising up men and women who would testify of you and your faithful priest. God, I pray that we would behold you through your word, that we behold our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, by the early 1500s in the church, the traditions of men and corruption, rampant corruption, really had replaced worship in spirit and in truth in the church generally. 
The leaders of the church at the time, they had led the people to confidence in themselves and the head of the church, called the Pope at the time, had become a position of political power. It was riddled with greed. Things had gotten so bad that the Pope set up this system that he would sell forgiveness in the form of indulgences. You can get away with sin as long as you pay the church. But it was really just a grand ruse to raise money to build this edifice called St. Peter's Cathedral. It wasn't spiritual. It was to raise an impressive, ostentatious cathedral. It was paying dues to be pleasing to God and They departed completely. The church had departed, it seemed, completely from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the time, in the early 1500s, it seemed the darkest, one of the darkest hours of the church. But in response, God had been raising up unsuspecting young men. And in 1517, he raised up an unsuspecting young monk to challenge corrupt doctrines and evil practices and to eventually bring many back to faith in God and his word up above the words of man and not to put confidence in our ability of self-atonement or pay for our sins, but to put confidence in God's grace alone, by faith alone, that we see rely on his word alone. God had all along, though, for several hundred years prior, been working quietly in the darkest hours of the church for a long time through, through men like John Wycliffe and then later John Huss until he raised up an imperfect man because Martin Luther was an imperfect man. But he used imperfect men, he used imperfect people to bring his people back to himself. And judgment in 1517, it began with the house of God, if you will, Just like Peter told us in 1 Peter that judgment's coming and it's beginning with the house of God. And so we see that there's a pattern throughout God's redemptive history that when it seems the darkest, God begins to reform, not in the nations around, but to begin to reform his people to point them back to hope in a faithful God. Not only is that where we find the setting of Samuel and the sons of Eli. Samuel, he comes on the scene really in Israel's darkest hour. If you remember the book of Judges, it ended with saying that um, the people, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They should have had God as their king, but they did what was right in their own eyes. And there was rampant corruption and immorality all throughout the land and things have gotten so bad now that we have a picture of the priesthood here that even the people who are supposed to be leading God's people don't even know who God is. Could there be a darker hour? Often God uses these dark hours to reform the church and to bring light and attention back to his faithful priest. And that's what we see way back here, thousands of years ago. It's what we saw in really the 1517s. And I think that's what we can see today is, as darkness is around us in the culture and the, you know, the, the, the society around us seems to be dark. Even some churches seem to be leaving the faith, polluting the gospel with the doctrines of men. 
And yet, where does God want to draw our attention? I think he wants to draw all of our attention, our, the church's attention, not just this church, but his church back to faith and his faithful high priest. And so this morning, I want us to see that in the midst of darkness, I believe God wants to see in the midst of darkness, we can trust in God's faithful promise. That's, that's the main idea I want us to see, is that in the midst of darkness, we can trust in God's faithful promise. That's what we get from this story of Samuel and Eli. There's some dark times here, but yet in the midst of darkness, we see that God is quietly working in this little boy, raising him up to maturity, so that so that God will carry out his promise. The setting of the passage overall is dark, but one of the first things we'll see is that even in the darkest hour, God is at work. Even in the darkest hour, God is at work. That brings hope to me. I hope that brings hope to you to see historically that God has always been at work, even in the darkest hour. Hour. Maybe you find yourself in a dark hour personally. God is at work, and he's always been at work, even when it seems darkest. We can see that in verses 11 to 26. In the very beginning, God's, God's been at work, even though things appear to be dark. I was thinking about how in the 80s I, I saw the, the eruption of Mount St. Helens, and, and you had these, these images of how basically all of Washington State was just blanketed in this cloud of ash, and, and everything began, became dark in the land. But, but then, really, what happened is all this volcanic ash fell, and it enriched the soil in the area so that new life began to spring up out of that kind of dark blanket. Well, there's a dark blanket over Israel, a seemingly dark blanket over Israel at this point in history. The highest spiritual authority, the priest Eli, he is very unspiritual. Remember a couple weeks ago, we saw that he's very undiscerning. He sees this, this godly woman, Hannah, come into the temple. She's praying. She's pouring out her heart. She's crying out to God. And he says, what are you doing in here? You're drunk. Come on, woman, stop muttering. Put away your wine. He's clueless. He's supposed to be discerning, and he's clueless. He's also become lazy. He's become weak. He's appointed his sons as priests over the sacrifice in the tabernacle of God, and yet they're extremely corrupt. They're vile. Look in verse 12, please. They says they're called worthless men. Worthless men. Boy, can you imagine that being said of anyone? That's an indictment, having no worth. The priests weren't only wicked, they were sinning continuously. The sons of the high priest of Israel, whom he had appointed to be priests of God Most High, they didn't even know God personally. Boy, that's sad that today it's true for very many people who claim to be Christians and people who even claim to be Christian teachers who only have a superficial second-hand knowledge of the Lord and, and use God for personal gain. These men didn't have a personal relationship with God. and They didn't recognize divine instruction as worthwhile following. Eli had to have known this when he appointed them, didn't he? You know, as a parent, 
You know, if you're a parent in here, you kind of have a general idea. You're able to recognize if your children have the fruits of the Spirit, if they're displaying love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Or you should, right? If If you know God, you're going to be able to discern. But some parents, like Eli, believe what they want. Some parents only see what they want. They fail to discern ask difficult questions about their children's affection for, desire to know God. May that not be said of any one of us. But Eli, he's the high priest of Israel. He's the spiritual leader of God's people. He should have known better. He should have been leading the people on this. And so we're left to conclude that either he knew and he ignored the blatant fact that they were ungodly, or he was just that blind Neither one is good, and both are an indictment on Israel. In the midst of sin, though, God's pursuing his people. He makes a way for his people to come to him. And all throughout the Bible, we see this theme repeating, isn't it? In the the very beginning of creation, God creates man and woman, and he creates them to be in fellowship with him and for his glory. And then what does man do? He tries to be God on his own, apart from God, to a, and in God in his judgment on man at the same time gives a glimmer of hope as he curses the snake and he says that, yes, you will bite the heel of the seed of Eve, but that seed will crush your head. And all throughout the Bible we see that theme repeating when man fails to worship God and serve him faithfully, like we all do, by the way. If we're honest, we all fail to serve God faithfully, and yet God has mercy and he makes a way for us to come to him even in the midst of disobedience and sin. And so we see here, God raises up this godly little boy through this godly mom and and a father who's at least trying to worship God sincerely. And so verses 13 to 17, look down your Bible, they go on to explain just how and illustrate how wicked and worthless sons of Eli were. The author, he gives us really two glimpses here in verses 13 to 17 of, of what they did that was so bad. You see, give a little background, in case you're a little new to the Old Testament, the, the priests of Israel, they weren't allowed to have their own land. That, that was so that they would depend upon God. They would trust in God for his provision. And that was actually to be a model of trusting in God for provision to God's people. And also, it was a way that God's people would worship him by giving to God and also giving to the priests for the provision of the teaching of God's word. And that's kind of a principle today. That's why I get a salary. But um, the, God's people were to give and, and the priests were to receive an allotted specific portion. But it was a very specific portion. Because you might be wondering, well, what's so bad about like, the priest going in and like, getting meat out with a fork? Or why? I mean, I like raw meat to cook it and roast it. What's so bad about that? And you might be thinking, what, what's the deal here? Well, God gave very specific guidelines in Leviticus 7 about um, how to bring an offering. And, and he allotted certain pieces for the priesthood. He said that they can have the breast portion and the right thigh. And by the way, all the fat, that belongs to the Lord. The choice parts belong to God. The best parts belong to God first, then the family is to give certain parts to the priest, and then the family was to feast on their own right there after they brought into the tent of meeting, they would have a feast. But instead of God's priests leading the people in honoring God, 
They were honoring themselves. Instead of giving God what was the best parts, they were saying, no, we want the best parts. Instead of relying on what they would get, they said, we're going to actually put this little trident in the pot, and before they even have a chance to offer it, we're going to take it from them. It wasn't worship, it was a priest stealing. It was a priest taking from God. It was dishonoring God. It was dishonoring the family. And if people would object, it says, they would object and say, well, hang on, let me burn the fat off first, please, because maybe, maybe the people were more righteous than the priests, is what, they, what we see. And yet the priests, they were thugs and goons, and so they, they sent their, you know, the, the mafia enforcement and said, no, if you don't give it to us, we're going to make you. you know, we're going to break your leg or whatever. I mean, that's kind of the idea we see here. It's blatant self-serving. It's blatant selfishness. It's using the worship of God to worship themselves and their own desires. Instead of giving their desires to God, instead of trusting Him to provide for them and take care of them, instead of trusting God has their best interests in mind, they believed that it was best for them to take their interests in their own hands and to take what they wanted, to take control. You ever tempted that way? You ever tempted to say, God, you know what? Thanks, you've been helpful thus far, but I'm going I'm to take it from here. Their example was leading people to self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and selfishness. Leading the people away from coming to God and depending upon Him. And by the way, why is that good? Well, because really, as we depend upon God, that's the only good for us because God is the only one who can meet all of our true needs. He's the only one who can truly satisfy. He's the only one who can give life. He's the only one whom we can rely on and trust. And so the people are leading, I mean the priests are leading the people away from the only place of their help and their sustenance and their hope. And they're leading away from God They didn't have the people's best interests in mind. They put their own interests ahead of others. Boy, that, that's directly in contrast to what we have in Philippians. says, you know, consider others as better than yourselves. Yet the priests were leading, not like Jesus, who was the faithful priest we'll see later, who didn't consider himself evil to God, but some submitted himself, counted us as better than him, so he laid down his own life, and yet they are the antithesis here. They are making others serve them. And I pray that that God keeps us, keeps me and Aaron and keeps us from not only leading like that, but from being like that. It's a sobering story. It's a sobering account. God doesn't approve of self-serving pastors any more than he didn't approve what the sons of Eli did and how they disobeyed God but led others in disobedience. And look down at verse 17. It says, Thus the sins of young men were very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They despised, they treated with contempt that was holy and honored and revered. Their job was to be ministers of the offering before God, and yet they dishonored God to honor themselves. Do you get that? They dishonored God so they might honor themselves. It was like they were resenting their dependence on the offering for their food. Today, the equivalent maybe of that might be treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. And maybe that looks like treating the offering of Jesus Christ with contempt and saying that, you know, 
God, your provision of Jesus, thanks, that was helpful with salvation, but that doesn't really do much for me now. I think we're tempted that way if we're honest. We're all tempted to act, to live, as if Christ's sacrifice, as if his offering, God's provided offering, as if that's not what we live by. Right, aren't we? Aren't we tempted to behaviorism? Aren't we tempted to kind of being confident in our own abilities or self-control and our own self-sufficiency and self-reliance? You know, maybe this morning you should ask yourself, where am I tempted to not rely on the offering that God has provided in Jesus Christ? That's why we talk about being gospel-centered in our church because really the good news about Jesus is meant to function in every aspect of our lives. To live self-sufficiently, trusting in our own means to be satisfied. That's one way as we live as if the offering of God is not sufficient. Maybe living as if what really matters is our own performance, our own behavior. But what God wants is for us to know Him and to worship Him by coming to Him as we feast on His offering as the means that we approach Him. Now, God made a, a once and for all offering, it tells us in Hebrews He made an once and for all time offering of his own son because no offering besides that would ever satisfy. And now we actually approach the throne of grace through his offering. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and help. You know, I was thinking about some of the ways that we symbolically declare our reliance on God's sacrifice and one of the ways we do that is through the, through the celebration of communion. We declare we're relying on his, his Son to be our food and drink, our sustenance. We, we're declaring that we don't rely on our own means, but we're relying on His provision. We declare that we're trusting in the body of Christ to take our place, to take the punishment that we deserved. And we're relying on the fact that it required His blood to be spilled, and that is our life. Well, contrary to Eli's sons look in verse 18 it shows us it says Samuel was ministering before the Lord and there's a repeating theme here of God working in the midst of darkness to raise up his man I'm um, look back at Samuel 11 there's 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 four times here in these verses we're going to see this theme about God working and it's really subtle you might not have noticed it because most of us just focus on how bad Eli and his sons were but look at verse 11 it says and the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord it's like God silently saying I'm at work I'm at work in the midst of darkness. Look, I have this boy, he's ministering to me. Even though he's before Eli, who's wicked, he's ministering to me in verse 11. Then look down in verse 18. It says that Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And then look in verse 21. It says the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. What was God doing? God caused him to be born, and God was growing him and raising him up in the midst of darkness to make a way to put his king in place. Then in verse 26, look down one more time. It says, the author tells us, the the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. I hope that phrase sounds a little familiar to you. Maybe it doesn't, but we'll come back to that towards the end. The young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then verse 17 it ends with this ominous condemnation. Look in verse 17. It says, Thus the sin of the young man was very great 
in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And the next thing that we're going to look at is that even when death looms, God gives life. Even when death looms, God gives life. That eruption from Mount St. Helens, the lava around the mountain, it killed all the vegetation. Everything was dark. There are pictures of dead animals all around. And if you were alive at the time, I think it was eight or nine years old, it seemed like a barren wasteland. And yet, if you visit that area today, it's just full of beautiful wildflowers that have bloomed. And it's, it's kind of a picture of how Hannah had been barren. Hannah had been barren prior to this. You can say she was symbolic of Israel's barrenness too. And yet, when she turns to God, God gives life. Verses 19 to 21, they give us a picture of Hannah visiting Samuel, making him a robe, and, and then they close with God giving him a, the barren woman abundant life. She has, she has not only uh, a couple more kids, she has three more sons and two daughters. She ends up having six kids. She couldn't have any kids. And yet, God, in her barrenness, brought new life. Verse 19, you can just picture Samuel's mother. She's, you know, she's got some, some flax. She's making it into linen cloth. She's probably spinning it on a, on a loom or whatever, however you make that. And, then, and she's weaving it together. And, and she's probably praying over that. She's bringing it to her son. And I imagine her prayer was that Samuel would, would be a servant of the Lord. And that's who we see he is. I know my prayer for my children, my greatest prayer is that they would know God, that they would love God and serve him with their whole lives. I pray really that that's our greatest goal too as parents. This isn't a a sermon on parenting, but boy, there's some application here, isn't it? I can imagine Hannah must have talked to her son, encouraged him and exhorted him to follow God every year and Every year she would come and they'd give this linen ephod, this simple priestly garment in direct contrast with the gaudy one that even God ordained, but the other priests would wear. But God brought life to Hannah. And, and let that be encouragement to you. When God's people cry out to him in their moment of desperation like Hannah did, When they cry out to God and trust in him, God makes his people fruitful, just like he made Hannah fruitful. And God honors our right motives as we come to him and say, God, for your sake, for your glory, for your good, I ask. So this morning, maybe you're in a low place. Maybe you feel barren. Maybe you feel destitute. I encourage you, cry out to God. Have faith in him. And he is the one who brings new life. And through Hannah's dependence on God, God would bring about Samuel, who would be a means of blessing for his whole people. And then we see this, this death sentence is kind of looming in this passage. It says, God was very displeased. And you're just thinking, oh man, that's never good. <laughs> that's never good in Scripture. You know, one of the last major times we saw that in redemptive history, it was kind of before this big wet time, right? This big flood happened. God was very displeased with all of mankind. God's very displeased with Eli's sons. Something bad is going to happen. This death sentence is looming. But meanwhile, Samuel was growing in the Lord's presence. 
Eli was growing old and his sons were growing away from the Lord. So we read really in verses 22 to verses 25 that in response to rejection, God brings judgment. When God's people reject him, God brings judgment. Now that's sobering. The sons of Eli had already rejected God. Now it doesn't mean they didn't know who God was intellectually. They would have known who God was intellectually. That would have been required of them as priests. They would have been able to probably memorize most of the books of the law at the time. They probably knew them. And sobering, and yet they didn't know God. They rejected God. And so in response, God brings judgment. Let that not be said of us that we are a people who only intellectually know God. Let us pursue God in spirit and in truth and say, God, I want to know you. Maybe you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and I'd encourage you to don't just be listening this morning, but, but respond and say, God, I realize that without you, I'm nothing Without you, God, life is hopeless. And and God, because of my sins against you and I've rebelled against you, God, I deserve your wrath, but God, I want to look to you in hope. And and Jesus, I ask that you would redeem me, that you would save me. Jesus, help me know you. They didn't do that. Eli's sons didn't turn. They were infamous for their disobedience. It says, Eli kept hearing. He was just that thick. He kept hearing they were infamous. They were notorious for their sinful behavior. But it, he didn't go right away and correct them like a parent should. He didn't say, as soon as he heard about something, he didn't say, hey, let me help you. Let me instruct you. You don't know God. It's evident lack of fruit. I'm concerned about you. He didn't do that. What we're all really called to do is godly parents. But he was weak and wimpy. He didn't do the difficult things. Now, they weren't just defiling the sacrifices. It said that they were openly, sexually defiling God's place of meeting. It says they, they lay with the women in the tent of meeting. Now, a little history on that. The tent of meeting, uh, originally, it was the place where God met Moses. He came down and he met his people there. It was now, now it had been expanded in the tabernacle, but it was right outside the Holy of Holies. It was where God's people came to meet him, and yet instead of meeting God, they were defiling God's people. They were sinning against his provision of atonement, spurning his means of mediation. There was no one left to mediate for them. Not because God's not merciful but because they had spurned the very hope in God's sacrifice and the offering, and they had rejected God, they had intentionally not known God. They needed a mediator, somebody to intercede for them. They had none. And that's sobering. We all need a mediator. Now, there's hope, and we'll see that in a few minutes. Eli should have removed his sons from the priesthood. He should have punished them. But he just scolded them. There were no real consequences. He just said, what are you doing, sons? I keep hearing all these things. Finally, I'm coming to you because I can't ignore it because everybody's harping on me. You know, I'll look bad if I don't at least say something to you so I can at least absolve myself of guilt. And so I'll say, what are you doing? I keep hearing these things. But he was a high priest. Not only should he have done something, he should have There should have been consequences for his children. He should have removed them from office, and there should have been church discipline. 
And by the way, today in the church, that's why our church, we are committed to all of the different levels of church discipline in a good and healthy way for the good of God's people and so that God's people don't get led astray into sin. He could have stopped this really early on and it would have been for the good of God's people. You know, in church discipline, doesn't begin with these huge things, tell it to the church. It just begins with normal life of us talking to one another and saying, hey, you know, when you spoke that way to your kids or when, you, when I saw that lady walking by and you looked at her that way, what was that all about? And, when I, you know, and it's helping each other and it's, it's, it's giving our lives up to each other and saying, hey, can you help me in this area? Uh, because I don't, I don't want to go astray here. That's just normative. That's redemptive. But that wasn't going on, obviously, because they'd gotten to the point where they were just abusing God's people. They were sexually abusing women who came to serve. Fortunately, there's been so many scandals in the last even 5, 10, 15, 20 years. In the name of God, God's people abusing other people. They already stopped trusting God. They already hardened their hearts. And because they had hardened their hearts, God gave them over. God gave them over to the hardness of their hearts. And that's a fearful thing that that. You know, not only for parents looking at our children, it encourages us, I don't want my kids' hearts to be hardened. I don't want my own heart to become hardened. That's why it's important that we pursue fellowship and relationship and gospel-centered community. And so, you know, Romans 1, the Apostle Paul, he explains this downward spiral. You can see it. Go and look it up maybe after today, this afternoon. Look up Romans 1, this downward spiral. But you can see it in the lives of the sons of Eli. They, they began suppressing the truth. But they were without excuse. They were priests. They didn't honor God. They didn't give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Instead of becoming wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for creatures, for people, and for the sacrifices, for the created thing. And so God, He removed His restraining grace from the sons of Eli, and He gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, and He purposed to kill them. That's frightening. That's a spiral that we never want to see anyone get into. Let's love one another more than that for the sake of the honor and glory of God and for the sake of His church, for the sake of His people. Instead of the sons of Eli living by faith in God's sacrifice, they live for themselves, and today... There's a sacrifice that we can trust in. The sacrifice of Jesus himself in our place. You see, living righteous lives, it's not about outward appearances. It's not what kind of priestly clothes we wear. It's not about how you came in dressed this morning or how impressive you look or sound or what words you know or even what appearances of confession and humility you might have. It's about, are you living by faith in the sacrifice that God provides? I want to ask you that. Are you, are you living daily by faith in the sacrifice and the offering that he provides? Just because he's always provided a way for us to come. He provided a way back then, a sacrifice and offering. It was spurned. May it not be said of us. Are we looking to his sacrifice and his offering today? Let's read verses 27 to 36. Look down your Bibles for that. We're going to see that in the midst of failure... And this is good news as well. In the midst of failure, God intervenes with his word. I'm going to read this passage of scripture. Look down in your Bibles with me, please. 
This is God's holy word. It says, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father where they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up after my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me? By fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you'll look with envious eye on all the prosperity that will be bestowed on Israel. And there won't be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you that I won't cut off from my altar will be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of man. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself. Do you hear that? I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to all that is in my heart and my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And shall say, please put me in one of the priests' place that I may eat a morsel bread. This man of God, he comes seemingly out of nowhere to bring judgment on Eli's house. And as the leaders of a nation go, so goes the nation. And Israel here, they're in dire straits. If you're born in the 80s, I don't mean the band. God provides them. Sorry, I, I'm just, can't help that. God provides deliverance for them from evil through his word, though, by judging sin. Do you know that deliverance is often comes through judgment of sin? You see, God judged our sins in his own son, on his own son. And deliverance came as God judged sins and poured out all of his wrath on his own son. So God asks them rhetorical questions. He says, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't burn incense before the people. You didn't make sacrifices for God's people. You didn't intercede for them. You didn't represent them before God. The very core components of what I called you and your sons to do, you failed. You're not my faithful priest. You misrepresented the people to me instead of bearing the people in their chest on that ephod that they were set with 12 stones, the tribes of Israel. They're supposed to have them in mind as they come in to bear the people on their hearts before God in prayer and as they're bringing in the sacrifice. Instead, they think about themselves. And so God, the phrase literally here is, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering? They're kicking at it like somebody kicks at the trash. They weren't content. They weren't relying on God. They were looking to be fed on their own. Eli's sons honored Eli honored his sons above God. May that never be said of us, by the way, as parents. Let's never be 
child-centered. Let's make sure that we're honoring God before our children. Instead of encouraging the people to give the best to God as they should, the priests took the best for themselves. Eli and his sons fattened themselves. They, instead of trusting in God to grow them. It's a spiritual principle here for us too, you know? Do, do we keep the best for ourselves first? We have to ask ourselves that honestly. Do we keep the best things for ourselves first? Or do we say, God, I want to offer this to you first. God, how would you have the first fruits of everything you've given? How would you have me use that? God, how would you have me use my time, the best of my time? How would you have me use that, God? God, how would you have me use the best of my energy, Lord? How would you have me offer to you the best of all that I am? God, how would you have me give you the the best of all my finances, Lord? In every area of life, God, I want to offer the best for you first, Lord, and say, how might I serve you before I serve myself? But they didn't do that. They were physically fat and spiritually starved. May we not be... I don't mean that overweight, but may we not just seek to fatten ourselves in life and yet be spiritually starved. May we ask God, Lord, how might I worship you because you've provided an ultimate sacrifice, Lord? How can I give my life up to you, not to earn your salvation, but in worship to you? Well, we see here that God cancels his promise to the house of Eli and his fathers and his relatives. And then he see the main message in this whole account to them is that he says, for those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Eli esteemed and honors his sons above God. They didn't think, and God didn't think highly of Eli. You know, that should make us take a look at our lives and say, wait a minute, am I honoring God in my life? Ask yourself, am I honoring God in my life? more than anything else. Lord, I don't want to, we don't earn our salvation, we don't earn favor, but there's things to learn here. God, as your people, may we honor you first and foremost. And then when we do that, like Hannah had honored God, even in her request, she said, God, I'm asking of a son so that I might give him back to you. And yet God was caused her to be fruitful and abundant. We can trust that, in, that God will make us fruitful and abundant. And I don't mean that nonsense about when we give money, God's gonna give us you know, 100 times back in money. But I mean, God is gonna make us truly fruitful in our lives and, and give us an abundance of all that we truly need. You know, this, this judgment that he pronounced later in Samuel, we're gonna see that Saul rounds up all the priests and, and he tells Doag the Edomite, he says, um, kill them all, and he does. All of the priests... In Eli's father's house, that whole priestly line that had been the priestly line, every one of them was killed by the sword. That's a, that's a frightening prophecy that, that comes true later on in Samuel. And one person is left, Abiathar, and, and he seems like he might be this faithful priest. Maybe, maybe he'll be the one. And then he tells Eli that not only we know this prophecy will come true, your two sons are going to die. And we're going to see in the next week or two that they do. They die on the same day. But God also declared hope in the midst of this judgment. He's promised, look in verse 35. 
He says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. What's the final thing we see in this account as we close? It's that God raises up his faithful priest to serve forever. That's what Samuel points us to. It points us to a longing. And the whole theme of Samuel is that it points us to look for the king because you think that, oh, maybe Saul will be this king, but then he's not. And then maybe Dave will be this king, and he seems like it, but then he's not, and he fails too. And, and but then maybe there's this priest, but yet Samuel's not quite a priest, even though he comes from a priestly line. He's a prophet and fulfills some duties, but he's not a priest. He's a prophet, he's a judge, and Maybe it's Abiathar. Maybe Abiathar will be the faithful priest. But later we're going to see in Samuel that Abiathar actually, he ends up being unfaithful. He supports David's son as he attempted a coup over Solomon. 1 Kings 2.27, you can just write that down for later to go and look, but I'll read it to you. 1 Kings 2.27 speaks about this and it says, the only man really, remember this prophecy about only descendant would weep? Well, it says in 1 Kings 2.27, So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And then you go on to see that, that Abiathar, he watches and envies Zadok. You know, name kind of sounds like some character from Superman or something, but uh, Zadok becomes his high priest. And he relies on Zadok's generosity, God's bringing about his promises. But what is God doing? God is showing that no, Abiathar is not the priest. No, Samuel is not the priest. Although you think maybe, but he's not a priest. And then Abiathar, he's not the faithful priest. And even Zadok later, he's, he's not the forever priest. Even though he's a man after God's heart, he's kind of fulfilled the scripture in part. But it leaves you longing. It leaves you longing and looking and say, who will be this priest who will be both the anointed king and priest forever and the readers left looking all throughout the old testament and god raises up one figure then another maybe this one is the king maybe this one's the priest who in the world will fulfill both of these offices who will be this faithful priest who will serve forever and yet we see throughout samuel and in this account that that we need God's people need godly leadership. Now, in part, there's different times when they have a modicum of godly leadership. But ultimately, they need a leader who won't fail them at all. Message the story, it's that God's people, they need godly leadership. Can you imagine living in that day? And you're reading the Jerusalem Post, at, you know, and you're reading about all that Eli's sons are doing. And that Eli doesn't do anything about it. And you're just thinking, is there any way out of this darkness? And then you hear the account of this prophet, and then you focus on verse 35 on, on this, this prophecy, and you say, wait a minute, maybe there's hope. Maybe there's hope in a dark day, in a dark time, when there's corrupt leaders and greedy adulterers, like a scene that was repeated in the 1500s. Maybe it's a scene... It could be repeated today when you see even prominent evangelical Christians who preach God's grace fail and fall in adultery. There's forgiveness, there's God's grace, but it points us to say that we cannot rely 
on human leaders ultimately, we must look for God's faithful leader, his faithful priest, his faithful king. It should create a longing in us. Remember I told you in 1 Samuel 2.26, we looked at that passage and said, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord. I hope that sounded familiar to you. Turn over in your Bibles just for a minute. I know we're flipping around. Luke 2.40. Look in your Bibles in Luke 2.40. Luke 2.40. Just two more minutes, bear with me. Luke 2.40. It's almost a direct quote. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. Now skip down just a little bit. Hope hope you're really there by now, but look at Luke 2. Just skip down 10 verses. I'm going to do that with you too, actually. In this verse 52, it says, And Jesus, this is almost a verbatim, increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and with man. It's like Luke is quoting Samuel. Why is he doing that? Is that a coincidence? No, it's not. He's pointing us to make that connection, to see that Jesus is the truly strong high priest Samuel was strong in the Lord. Zadok was a faithful priest. But Jesus here is the true faithful high priest. The book of Hebrews, it tells us that directly, it says in Hebrews 7, it says, it was indeed fitting we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer daily sacrifices first for his own sins and for those of the people since he did this once and for all when he offered himself. And then we read in Hebrews 8, 1, it says, now the point and what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up not in man. But in Hebrews 9, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all to the holy places, skipping down by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Samuel is meant to make us long for the high priest that we need and to say that no other substitution will do. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, I mentioned this earlier, Hebrews 10, 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we do have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is the faithful priest. Then it goes on, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meet togethers the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Do you see that we've gotten from the Old Testament? The Old Testament has relevance for our lives. We've gotten from the Old Testament. We see that we need a leader. We see that we need a priest, a godly leader. Is it Samuel? Is it David? Is it Zadok? No, it's Jesus. He's the high priest. He reigns forever. And not only that, he's building his house, the house that God said he would build, and he's building his church. Because of him, we're to stir up each other to love and good works. That's what we're doing this morning. That's why we're gathering. You can go from the Old Testament all the way 
to our high priest and to why we're even here and what our purpose is. And we're to talk to each other about his love and his grace and his promises just like we're doing. Samuel, the rest of the Bible, shows us we need that faithful king, that faithful leader, and faithful priest. Sometimes you might think you'll be fine without him, but, but none of us are. We really have a good, righteous, caring, sacrificial prophet, priest, and king. And it's only Jesus. It's only through his faith alone, by his grace alone. Only Jesus can mediate between God and man, and he has done just that. Amen. I have the band go ahead and come up, and we'll sing one last song. If you'll stand, please, as we pray. Jesus, we look to you, our great high priest, and we thank you that you have made the way for us to confess our sins to you and our weaknesses and our failures to you and that your blood has, has covered all of our sins, that you've taken all the punishment for our sins, but then you've washed us white as snow. So God, we come confidently before your throne of grace because you are the great high priest, Jesus. And so we come before you, we exalt you, we look to you, and we want to worship you with all that we are because you have bought us with your own offering, with your own sacrifice. And Lord, we want to revel in your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.